we really just need you. We need your grace and your sustaining power. We need your goodness in our life. God, we need an experience of the divine far more than we need anything on this earth. So remind us today, oh God, even as we um, talk about marriage and talk about relationships between husbands and wives, that what we experience uh, even in our marriage is is God-ordained, God-designed, and then it's an experience of you and your Holy Spirit in a relationship here on this earth. Draw us near to yourself today, O God. In Christ's name, amen. Well, an elderly pastor had one final sermon to preach before retiring. He had been in his church for almost 25 years, and so early that Sunday morning, that last Sunday morning, the pastor came downstairs for breakfast, and in the back of the fridge, he found a small hidden container with three eggs and a hundred loonies. Perplexed, the pastor asked his wife about the box and its contents. His wife admitted that she had hidden it for 25 years in order to prevent his feelings from being hurt. You see, she said, over the last 25 years of ministry here, every time you preached a poor sermon, I placed an egg in the box. Well, that's nothing to be embarrassed about, the elderly pastor replied. Three eggs in a box, that's three poor sermons over 25 years. That's pretty good. So what's the deal with the hundred loonies? His wife replied, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them to the neighbors for a dollar. <laughs> If you can't trust your spouse to tell you the truth, who can you trust, right? Uh, For those of you who have been tracking with us through the book of Colossians, uh, through this entire series called The Hope of Glory, you know that Paul, in the first half of his letter to the church at Colossae, has talked about some big universal truths about God. And then about halfway through, at the first verse of chapter 3, Paul begins to get specific about how the internalization of those truths impact our everyday life. He talks about things like character and speech and sexuality and community, and then he turns his attention to Christian households. And so that's where we're at today. We're going to talk about marriage. And before we start, before we read the passage together, I want you to know that these instructions in Colossians 3 and its parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 are among the most misunderstood misquoted, and even radically hijacked passages in all of Scripture. And people tend to make two critical mistakes when they study the Bible in general, but these two critical mistakes, these two critical errors will prove really fatal if you make these errors, especially in studying the text that we're going to talk about today in Colossians 3. And the first error that people make when they study the Scripture is that they fail to consider the context into which Paul speaks these instructions. So just so everybody knows, when we read Scripture, we always have some gaps that we have to bridge. 
This letter was written 2,000 years ago in a different language. It was written to people 6,000 miles away from us. They were living in a radically different culture. So if we don't bridge some linguistic gaps or some historical gaps and cultural gaps, especially when it comes to this particular passage, we're going to be dead in the water when it comes to right interpretation and application. So just so everybody knows, the first thing we're going to do today is talk in detail about some about the context into which Paul speaks these instructions for Christian households and marriages. we got to understand context today. If we don't, we're in trouble. Now, the second critical mistake that people make when interpreting scripture in general, and it's like, again, like I said, especially this passage, is they do what's called proof texting. Has anybody ever heard of proof texting before? Here's how proof texting works. You look to the text or you look to the scripture to affirm what's already going on in your heart rather than looking to the scripture to reveal the heart of God. So here's what I mean by that. There are some folks out there who want to discredit Scripture, or they want to reject God's commands outright, and so people have used this passage that we're going to talk about today to claim that God is a chauvinist, or worse yet, that he's a misogynist, or they use this passage to claim that the Bible affirms slavery, and then they say, you see, we don't have to pay attention to the Bible because God's a misogynist, or God's a chauvinist, or God affirms slavery, so we don't have to pay attention to it at all. Or men sometimes have used this passage to insist upon their own dominance or authority within a marriage. And basically it's because they want to play golf more. And that's wrong too. That's not how this passage works. So the second thing that we're going to do is rather than try to prove or affirm things that are already in our heart, we're going to look to this passage and earnestly seek out the heart of God. Does that make sense? And I would urge you this morning, as we read this text together, to do those two things with me, okay? Consider the context. It's critical that we understand the context. And number two, let's not proof text. Let's go to the text and try to understand the heart of God rather than to confirm our own preferences or our own leanings. And if you do those things, what you're going to see here in Colossians 3 is that Paul completely overturns cultural norms and offers a whole new way to be human within the context of work and family and marriage. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians 3, if you got them, and we'll pick it up in verse 18, which is where we left off just a couple weeks ago when Vijay Krishnan was here. Colossians 3, verse 18, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. The scripture is up here on the screen and you can follow along as we go. Colossians 3 verse 18, Paul writes this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So let's start with context, shall we? Let's start with historical and cultural context. So this letter was written in about 60 AD within the context of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, the family was considered the foundation for society. It was considered the foundational building block for all of society. And so family and family values were highly controlled. And the family was highly valued. And the family didn't just include uh, husbands and wives and children. The family included all of the individuals and their corresponding relationships that Paul mentions here. It included husbands and wives. It included parents and children. It included masters and slaves. So the entire household and every individual in it were governed by a strict set of rules called paterfamilias. So literally translated, paterfamilias means father of the family. And under that system, under paterfamilias, the oldest living male in the household held complete control over all members of the household. Husbands, wives, slaves, masters, and children. The oldest living male male had complete control over all of them. So much control, in fact, that the oldest living male under paterfamilias could determine whether a man or a woman or a slave or a master or a child lived or died. That's how much control the oldest living male had over all who were in the household. So under paterfamilias, slaves or bond servants, as Paul calls them in Colossians 3, were nothing more than chattel. They were property. In fact, you've heard of Aristotle. Aristotle actually argued, he divided farm tools into two categories. He said, you have two different types of farm tools. You have those who are articulate and those who are not articulate. So Paul or Aristotle uh, says that you have farm tools that can't speak. That's like rakes and shovels and stuff. And you also have farm tools that can speak. Those are called slaves. That's how much control and how little authority slaves had under paterfamilias. And the master's ultimate goal was to control the slave regardless of the level of violence that it required. Now, the slave's ultimate goal was either to A, escape, or B, purchase his or her freedom somehow, which was highly unlikely. So in Colossians chapter 3, when Paul encourages bondservants or slaves under that paterfamilias within the household, he encourages them, look up here on the screen, to obey with sincerity of heart even when their master is not looking. When Paul ends up there, uh, he goes from husbands and wives to fathers and children to slaves and masters, and he encourages slaves to obey with sincerity of heart, he's proposing a revolutionary set of values. He's advocating that those who work for others should not just do the minimum required, but should extend maximum effort. 
Then Paul does something else that would have been kind of an overturn or subverted values within the Roman Empire under Paterfamilias. He says that slaves will receive an inheritance. In other words, in God's empire, slaves would own property, which they could not do within the Roman Empire. More importantly, if slaves could own property within God's empire, slaves were not property themselves. And then Paul admonishes Christian masters to treat their bondservants justly and fairly. And he would have shocked his readers once again with that exhortation. Because again, Aristotle argued that it was irrelevant to talk about justice and fairness when it came to slaves. Because one could not be unjust toward property. That would have been the prevailing attitude within the Roman Empire that slaves were property. Paul, however, reminds masters and slaves with that one little word also that they share a common heavenly master. In other words, slaves and masters were equal in the sight of God according to Paul. Thus, slaves could work with sincerity of heart, masters could treat slaves fairly, and their relationship could be governed by equality and justice. So rather than abolishing the system, Paul reforms the system from the inside out by injecting Christian values. This was indeed a revolutionary approach to paterfamilias and the system that was in place in the Roman Empire. Interestingly, Paul's letter to the Colossians is often paired with Paul's brief letter to a man named Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner who lived in Colossae and worshipped at the Colossian church. Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves who ran away. And so typically a runaway slave would have, uh, would have endured one of three punishments. First, they would have been killed. Second, they might have been shackled with a collar around their neck. Or third, they might have been branded with the letters F-U-G on their forehead. F-U-G stands for fugitivus or fugitive. However, Onesimus met Jesus due to Paul's ministry and willingly returned to his master Philemon. So in Paul's letter to Philemon, he encourages Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother in Christ and as a partner in ministry rather than as property. And perhaps we would expect Paul to simply advocate for releasing slaves. But the Bible, listen close now, the Bible requires something far more difficult and far more revolutionary for the master than simply releasing his slaves. Paul says to masters, don't just release them, partner with them, treat them as brothers, Worship alongside of them. Allow them to own property. Give them justice and see yourself as an equal with a common heavenly master. For the Colossian church who were used to paterfamilias and who were used to slaves as property, this would have absolutely blown their mind. This would have been something radically different than what they were used to. We're going to skip fathers and children because I want to get on to husbands and wives and spend most of our time there this morning. If, if you're interested in what Paul has to say to fathers and children, uh, jump online at bayviewglen.org and listen to the message from August 6th of 2014 when we studied uh, Ephesians last spring. 
So now let's talk about how paterfamilias in this Roman system for governing household impact, households impacted husbands and wives. So listen close now. Under paterfamilias, a wife, by law, was property, just as a slave was. And since wives were property, they were considered incapable of making moral choices. They were prevented from pursuing formal education. And they owed their husbands absolute, unquestioning obedience. We actually have it recorded in antiquity, in history from 2,000 years ago, that men often congratulated themselves and others on having an obedient wife. Women were rarely, very rarely given the opportunity to opt out of marriage, while the husband could divorce his wife simply by saying, I divorce you three times out loud. That's how quickly a husband could opt out of a marriage. You think it's easy to divorce now in modern society. It was far easier then. All you had to do was say, I divorce you three times. Men could have as many lovers as they wanted to, uh, and wives were expected to keep quiet. And though paterfamilias was the prevailing paradigm for governing families in the Roman Empire, each religious or philosophical system had its own set of rules for husbands and wives, and those sets of rules were called, it was called a household table. So paterfamilias was one of hundreds of household tables that would have existed within the Roman world, and each philosophical or religious system had a different household table. Paterfamilias just so happened to be the prevailing one. And of those hundreds of options, hundreds of different paradigms for managing family relationships, not one of them, not one, commanded a husband to love his wife. Hundreds of options, hundreds of household tables, hundreds of sets of rules and expectations from different religious and philosophical systems all around the Roman Empire, and not one, except for Paul's instructions in Ephesians and here in Colossians chapter 3, only here are husbands commanded to love their wives. But it's not just a command to love. Listen close now. Paul doesn't use the word for brotherly love here. He doesn't use the word for sexual love here. Rather, he uses the word for divine love. He uses the word agape. It's a love so radical and so sacrificial that it needed its own word to describe it. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So husbands, men of God, God is calling us to love our wives sacrificially relentlessly and unconditionally. He's calling us to lay down our rights just as Jesus did. He's calling us to lay down our right to play golf. He's calling us to lay down our right to be right. He's calling us to lay down our right to be on the phone during dinner. He's calling us to lay down our right as we feel like our right is to go out and have a beer with the boys. He's calling us to lay down those rights in order to love our wives well. He's calling us to sacrifice, God is, to sacrifice our time, to sacrifice our energy, to sacrifice our picture of how things were supposed to be. He's calling us to be more than a friend or a lover. He's calling us to make the unconditional love of God tangible, obvious, and experiential 
on a daily basis for our wives. This, again, is a revolution. And so when we finally get to Paul's instructions for wives to submit, our picture looks far different now than our culture, our modern culture, might want to paint. So let's understand just a couple of things about Paul's instructions for wives now that we understand his instructions for husbands to love your wives unconditionally like Christ loved the church. First, these instructions that Paul gives to wives are not general instructions. They're specific instructions. So listen really closely. It's for Christians, These instructions are for Christian households. Could a non-Christian husband or wife benefit from these commandments? I suppose so, but their core need is salvation by grace through faith. And according to verse 1 of chapter 3, these instructions here in Colossians at the end of chapter 3 are for those who are raised with Christ. These are for Christians. More specifically, everybody understand this, wives are to submit to husbands, not women to men. So these instructions don't spill over into politics or into the marketplace or into just whatever realm of life you want to apply them to. They're limited to a Christian household. Second, the instructions are given to wives and the motivation for wives to submit to husbands is to do so in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. So men of God, just everybody knows, that means that we're not really a part of that puzzle. Like, we're not told to suggest ways in which our wives might submit to us, okay? We do, they don't need our help. We're only commanded to love, period. That's what we're commanded to do here. Third, this word submit is a different command than is given for slaves or for children in this passage. Slaves and children are told to obey. Wives are told to submit. It's a different word, and it's a different word on purpose. Wives are instructed to hypotazo in Greek, and it implies a willing, personal choice. So Paul's commands for wives subverts this widely accepted notion that women were unable to make moral choices. He encourages them, exhorts them, instructs them to make a moral choice. Fourth and finally, wives are not instructed to submit to authority or bullying or preferences They're not told to submit to tyranny or orders. Wives are, and please hear me say this very, very loudly, wives are not told to submit to abuse. Wives are instructed to submit to the sacrificial, tender, unconditional, and Christ-like love of a husband. That's instructions for wives from Colossians. Now, I love doing pre-marriage counseling for couples that are engaged. And I love baiting young men with this question. I think it's fantastic. I typically ask young men that I do pre-marriage counseling for, what do you think it looks like to, to do this in a marriage, for a wife to submit 
to the husband. Tell me a little bit about that. And so men, young men especially, typically respond this way. They say, well, if we have a decision to make, especially if that decision is time sensitive, like we've got to make this decision by this day or by this time, and, and we argue about it and, 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 we, and we can't kind of seem to reconcile and come to you know, unity of mind on the thing, when it's time to make the decision, I make the decision and even though she disagrees with me, she has to submit. That's what I think this looks like in a marriage. And I typically tell those couples to begin saving for marriage counseling now because you're going to need it if that's what you think it looks like to submit within the context of a marriage. That's not the picture that Paul is painting here for wives to submit to husbands. So what is the picture? What does it mean for a husband to love his wife with an agape kind of love and a wife would respond in joyful submission to an agape kind of love? Let me read John chapter 13 for you. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Here we have a picture of Jesus loving his disciples in the way that a husband is supposed to love his wife. Here we have Peter responding in joyful submission to the love of Christ. Christ had all authority and put it aside. Christ had every right to ask for or even demand service, yet he didn't. Not only did he not require service, Christ became the servant. He stooped down and washed animal feces and dirt and sweat off of feet. He became the lowest slave in order to demonstrate a revolutionary love. And while unconditional love was difficult for Peter to accept, he too took a humble attitude. He confessed his need. He accepted service and sacrifice. To put it in our language today, Peter submitted to the love of Christ. Now, please hear me say I'm not suggesting that Jesus and Peter were married. Everybody understand that? That's just absurd and ridiculous. But this is the picture of unconditional love and submission that we should see in a Christian marriage. Humility, deference, the sacrificial, self-denying love of a husband met with the joyful submission of a godly Wife, submission to that unconditional love, allowing a husband to love her that way. 
Now that's a revolution. So, now that we understand how Paul is instructing us just in theory, I want to offer you a few practical suggestions. Just a couple of practical suggestions for those who are husbands or those who want to be husbands one day. For those who are a wife or those who want to be a wife one day. To learn how we might love our wives in an unconditional, Christ-like, sacrificial way. And women, how you might respond in joyful submission to that sacrificial, Christ-like love. So men, I'm going to start with you. Practical suggestion number one when it comes to loving your wives as Paul commands us to do in Colossians chapter 3. Here it is. Practical suggestion number one. Pursue, don't retreat. Pursue, don't retreat. Uh, Men of God, typically we experience like two emotions and those two emotions are mad or fine. You You ever feel that way? Like, we don't have that same kind of gamut of emotions that women experience. Like, you know, you you get the question, how are you doing? And you answer one of two ways, I'm fine or I'm mad. That's it. That's all we've got. And so what it means to pursue and not retreat is to allow yourself to be open emotionally with your wife. Uh, Amy and I have a, have a little paper in our house, and it's got like 150 different emotion words on it so that I have more language than just mad or fine to use with Amy in order to pursue her emotionally, to open myself up to her emotionally. This is especially critical when it comes to conflict, is that the husband would pursue and not retreat. The Bible says this, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So even when we rebelled, even when we ran away from him, even when we rejected him, Christ pursued us. He came after us. He sought to reconcile with us. Listen close now. Even when we were 100% in the wrong and he was 100% in the right, he came after us. He pursued us. He did not retreat from us. So husbands, if we want to love our wives like Christ loved the church, guess what we've got to do? Pursue. Even in the midst of conflict. Even when you are 100% in the right and she is 100% in the wrong, which will never happen, by the way. But even when you feel that way, if you want to love her as Jesus loved the church, your job is to pursue reconciliation and not retreat. To pursue emotionally and not retreat. To be active in going after your wife. Pursue, don't retreat. Practical suggestion number two for the men is listen, don't fix. Listen, don't fix. Please, women of God, do not nudge your spouse while I'm talking about this, all right? You're not the Holy Spirit. That's above your pay grade. You don't need to tell them this is something that you need to shore up in your life. Men of God, listen, don't fix. I understand that this is tough, men, because sometimes we feel like we see issues in our wives' life uh, very, very clearly even when they don't. And they express emotions and they talked about how they're feeling in the midst of it and what's going on as they're going through it. And what do we want to do? We want to what? Fix it. 
We want to get up in the middle of it and make it better and to make it different. In fact, I, I want to show you a video real quick just to help us wrap our mind around conversations that, 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 that kind of feel this way and look this way. So turn your eyes up here on the screen. It's just there's all this pressure, you know, and sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop over, trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just don't. Try to see. Men of God, do you ever feel like you're having that conversation sometimes? Don't nudge your spouse now. Don't nudge them. I feel like I have that conversation with Amy all the time. Men of God, your wife does not need you to fix it. She needs you to listen and understand, even if she has a nail sticking out of her forehead. And in doing that, in listening and understanding, putting yourself in your wife's shoes, you will be loving her just as Christ Loved his church. Number three, sacrifice don't demand. Men of God, sacrifice don't demand. I'll be honest with you, I've grown a little weary of a Christianity that affirms men being wusses and cowards. I've grown a little tired of a Christianity that excuses men who are arrogant tyrants or worse yet, abusive. We have a savior that was tender enough to weep with his friends, but courageous enough to drive thousands, potentially even hundreds of thousands, out of the temple with a whip made of cords. Now, men of God, I'm not saying that you should go out and make a whip out of cords. What I am saying is that the godly husband does not demand his rights. The godly husband is strong enough to lay his rights down. The godly husband is courageous enough to sacrifice for his wife and for the sake of his family. Wives, some practical suggestions. Some practical suggestions for you in terms of responding to a sacrificial, Christ-like love of a husband. Number one, encourage your husband and use your words. Encourage your husband. I don't know if you understand this, but, but women of God, the words that you have for your husband are life-changing, life-altering. 
men of God, you can close your ears here for a second. Women of God, I just want you to know that when your husband leaves for work in the morning, he's told pretty much all day that he's not worth much and that he's not doing his job well enough, more often than not. More often than not. Statistics just show that. And so when your husband comes home and what they get is you're not a good enough husband and you don't spend enough time with us, like that's not fun. So when you encourage your husband, just words like thank you for working really hard to provide for your family can change the course of a day, a week, a month, or even a life. Encourage your husband. Say, I value you. I support you. Most wives, this is, this is just kind of what happens. This is a general statement. Uh, so this is not with everyone, but most. They think this kind of stuff. Women, you think this kind of stuff, but you don't say it out loud. Just let it come out of your mouth and encourage your husband with your words. Number two. Women of God, submission in, in, a, in a marriage and responding to the Christ-like sacrificial love of your husband means that you need to communicate. You need to communicate. Uh, women of God, men don't take hints very well. I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. We're not real good at the whole breadcrumb approach. I remember when Amy and I were first married, we were watching a, a, a baseball game on TV, and we were eating dinner at the coffee table, and Amy pulled out a DVD out of our little DVD storage and put it on the end table, and I just thought she wanted to have the DVD out. I didn't know what she wanted, right? So we finished eating our meal and watching this baseball game on TV, and I said, all right, you know, it's like 10 o'clock. Is it time to go to bed? You know, and like, you know, I, I got to get up and go to work in the morning, and dinner's finished, and the game's over. And Amy literally breaks into tears, and she said, all I wanted to do is watch a DVD. I was like, well, then don't pick up the DVD and just put it on the end table. I'm not good at hints, Men of God are typically not good at hints. Say, I want to watch a DVD. You know what we'll say? Great. Let's watch a DVD. But we need you to help us out in that way by communicating. Finally, and, and, and I, women of God, invest before you withdraw. Invest before you withdraw. We need your help. Your husbands need your help in terms of character development, in, in, in terms of being more Christ-like. You are a voice for your husband in helping them grow to be more like Jesus. But we need you to help us identify the ways that we are growing. Your husband needs you to help him kind of identify the ways that he's already looking like Jesus. He, he needs your encouragement like we talked about. And, 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 and that needs to happen before you come alongside and say, hey, there's this one area of your life I see that you need to shore up. Or this one area of your life I see that you need to kind of put back together. I remember Amy telling me when she used to work at a bank, she had an individual call in, one of the clients at the bank, and, and you know, was worried about their, their account, was overdrawn. And the person's response literally was, um, my account cannot be overdrawn. I still have checks left. Like, that's not how accounts work. Just because you have checks left doesn't mean you have money in them. 
Women of God, just because you have something to say doesn't mean you have enough in your account to make a withdrawal with your husband. It has to be investment first. There has to be some encouragement first. There has to be some affirmation first before you correct, before you help shape, and before you raise a flag on something that maybe in his character needs his attention. Here's the thing. Amy and I are working on this in our marriage. We've been married 10 years in April, 10 years, and we're working on this, working on the sacrificial Christ-like love for me. And she's working on the submission part for her. This is a dance. This is not a you decide one day and it's all said and done. This is a lifetime of learning together. Because here's the deal. When you put two sinners in a house together, there's conflict, right? It doesn't matter if they both love the Lord. It doesn't matter if they care deeply about each other. There just tends to be some conflict. And conflict reveals our flaws. And when those flaws are revealed within the context of a marriage and husbands and wives, you really only have a couple of three choices. One, you can completely ignore your flaws. This is why people, you know, married people live together like as roommates and they share a checkbook and they share a house, but they don't actually share love. Because they've ignored their conflict and they've ignored their flaws. Or when those flaws are evidenced and when those flaws come up and that conflict comes up in your marriage, you can run from your marriage. This is why divorce rates are skyrocketing. This is why culture around us has redefined marriage, which if you think about that, that's just kind of a ridiculous idea that you could redefine marriage. It's like redefining a child. Like It's a very, very odd thing to do. But this is why culture runs away from it, both in general and specifically. Again, this is why divorce rates are going up, because when conflict and flaws arise, people run from their marriage. So you can ignore the conflict, or you can run from it. Or your third option, when challenges arise and when conflict arises, is face those issues head on and work it out. And the way that you do that is right here in Paul's instructions to husbands and wives. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to the sacrificial, Christ-like love of your husband. Would you pray with me? God, we confess together that there is only one relationship on earth that is designed to reflect that's designed to portray, that's designed to be an image of your love for your people, and that's the relationship of a husband and a wife. Not pastor and congregation, not friends, not father and son or mother and daughter. No other relationship is like this one. God, for the men in this place, I pray that you would teach us to be sacrificial, Christ-like, unconditional lovers of our wife. God, that you would teach us to lay aside our rights, that you would teach us to pursue and not retreat, that you would teach us to make your love, O God, tangible and experiential on a day-in and day-out basis. And God, for the women in this place, I I pray that in 
even in these instructions, they would not see um, a trap or that they would not see something that binds them, but they would see freedom and joy as they allow themselves to be loved by a husband who's loving them as you love your people. God, we need your grace even in our marriages. We need your healing touch. We ask that you would continue to draw us near, uh, even in our families. In Christ's name, amen.